From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. See, um, Trevor likes playing with Jake. He likes wrestling. He also likes trains and trucks. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and tidbits we find where no one else is looking. He may just like be a cute old boy, but he likes to get into mischief. No one else bears witness to your childhood in the same way as your brothers and sisters. And because of that, these relationships are unique, irreplaceable, and often complex. Best friends, warring adversaries, the sibling relationship is nothing if not intense. Stay with us. I love, 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 love you. <laughs> Vuli and Becky are 18-year-old African-Australian twins who were adopted by family friends after their parents both died of AIDS. Vuli was born HIV positive. Becky was not. The constant threat of disease that hangs over them informs everything these close twins do, together and separately. Julie Kimberly of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation tells their story in our first segment, called Epic, Painful, Long, Scary. What's the worst thing about being HIV positive? Probably the worst thing is the whole secret. It has to be the secret. Having to decide, should I tell, shouldn't I tell, constantly. And also having at the back of your mind, knowing that you're going to die of it one day. Like you've got this thing in you and you feel perfectly healthy and fine now. And one day it's just going to kill you. <laughs> like It's kind of a scary thought. Actually, when I was younger, I... It was kind of hard to get, accept the idea that it was only one of us could have had it. And then I made myself go and get another blood test and stuff to make sure. And now I just feel it a bit. Either one, both of us shouldn't have it or one of us or both of us should. Vuli and Becky Umkunanzi are 18-year-old African-Australians. Vuli was born HIV positive, yet his twin brother Becky is negative. Welcome to ABC Radio National's Street Stories. Vuli and Becky were born in Zimbabwe to their Australian mother, Megan, and African father, Richard. The family moved to Australia when the boys were just little babies. Susan Jones is a twin's adoptive mother. On my way to Africa, I had a dream actually that they had twins, which was quite bizarre. And then about a week after I was arrived in Zimbabwe, it was confirmed that Megan was pregnant. She took me to the pub and we had a double brandy each because she'd found out also that it was twins and she needed the courage to tell Richard <laughs> that she was pregnant with twins and he fell on the floor, which was his reaction to a lot of events in his life in a very dramatic way. But he, they were pretty pleased and excited about having kids, yeah. Do you get tired of having HIV? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's just so freaking annoying taking tablets every day and, I don't know, keeping a secret and going to doctor's appointments and doing all this stuff and... That actually costs quite a bit as well, just to get tablets and stuff. And it's a hassle I'd rather not have, I suppose. Sir, 
Good day. Um, just we'll leave for my ten o'clock appointment. Good day. I'm all right. How are you? They found out they were HIV positive when um, the boys were about nine months old. Um, Richard was ill and he went to um, have some tests and discovered that he um, had a form of tuberculosis which was secondary to um, HIV. By that time I was back in Australia and uh, Megan wrote to me and told me they had been diagnosed um, but they hadn't had the children tested at all. Megan said she couldn't face having the children tested at that point and in fact she didn't get them tested until they were nearly three years old just before not long before she died because she just felt so horrible about it that she just didn't really want to know about it about the kids it was bad enough that they were both positive not to then think about the implications of the kids was there any speculation about the possibility of where they picked it up from did they talk about that at all mm. um richard used to sort of speculate that he had got HIV through medical treatment in Zimbabwe. Uh, Richard remembered one instance where he went to hospital where the nurse had one injection with antibiotics and went, okay, you three have got the same thing and use the same needle on the three of them. And that seemed to be standard practice in Africa at the time. I think that the medical transfer of HIV in Africa is much more prevalent than we in the West really want to believe. We're much happier thinking that they're sexually promiscuous than to think about our interventions for immunisation programs and how that might have had an impact on the spread of HIV there. So what time did you get home? Like 4.30. Oh, God, I didn't hear you come in at all. Uh, you would have been at that stage of sleep. Hmm? I, I heard you the other night when you came in, clomping through here like nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's because I was walking through and I somehow just kept on hitting things. <laughs> if you had to use four words to describe HIV for you and your experience with it, what would they be? Epic. Painful, uh, long, scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you discuss your fears with Becky? Do you talk to him about the fears you have? Yeah. It's it's very relevant because I mean recently, um, one of my good friends has gotten pretty sick. I've we me and Becky started talking a lot more about it because it just blew our minds because. When we saw someone sick in hospital, we realised that's what happened to our parents and that'll probably happen to me and stuff. And, I mean, it is a fear, but we know it and we've always known it. And, you know, it sucks and stuff, but, hey, it's there. What what can we do? We, it's better not... It feels better not to talk about it in a way, like, once I've brought it up and, you know, talked about whatever we can talk about with it. I don't want to bring it up again because it's a pretty, pretty scary thought. Mm. The boys were tested in about 1990 
by that stage, both Richard and Megan had been ill. Both were receiving treatment. They were both much more accepting of the fact that they were positive. And um, they decided to get the boys tested to see what was going on there for them. Vully was at that time not as well as Beggy. He was always had colds and coughs and he wasn't growing as vigorously as his brother was. So Megan asked me to go with her and Richard when they got tested and, and getting the results and things like that. She didn't want them to have a different diagnosis. She wanted them to both be the same. That was her biggest fear, was that they would be different in their diagnosis, which in fact is the reality. But um, it was a very tense and um, difficult time. For Richard and Megan, there was a lot of guilt. When you have a condition that you pass on to your children inadvertently, there's always a lot of guilt around that. Do you remember when your parents died? Yeah, I do. I remember trying to wake up my um, dad when he first died. That's it, I think. Yeah. So you, you don't remember your mum dying or their funerals and things like that? No, I don't remember um, all the funerals and that sort of stuff. No. I suppose it's pretty frustrating um, not to have memories of them, but then again, it's like I'm kind of, I suppose I've just got used to it and grown up with it. It kind of changes the like meaning as I get older and stuff. When I was little, it was just, you know, this thing that, that's there. And then they died and I realised they died of it. I thought, oh, you know, that's all right, but it's not going to happen to me or anyone else because um, they've got all these tablets and stuff. A year before they died, Megan asked me would I take on the responsibility of the boys after she died. And I remember that very vividly. We, we went down to a palm tree in the Botanic Gardens. It's my personal monument. This is the place where I became a mother, in a way, in a bizarre way. She asked me to, um, if anything happened to them, would I take on the responsibility of the kids? And I just automatically said yes, because you would not say no. They felt that I would be able to keep the boys in contact with both sides of their family and both of their identities. That was the reason that I ended up bringing them up, which in fact I've tried to keep them as much as is humanly possible in contact with um, both their family in Australia and their family in Zimbabwe. Do you feel different to other kids your age? Oh, no, I don't really not. Because I mean, I've, I, everyone has their differences and similarities, so I suppose I feel different in terms of um, my understanding of HIV and sickness and that's and death and that sort of stuff. But I feel the same in terms of the fact I'm 18, I'm a teenager, and I'm just like them. Like, want to party, have a good time, meet people, enjoy life, you know. How hard is it to keep it a secret when you have medications and things like that, and you are living a completely normal life other than you have HIV? It's actually probably pretty pretty good because, I mean, you know, my hair's not falling out or 
something really obvious that like with HIV you, you could really you couldn't tell if you saw someone in the street unless they were dying of AIDS you couldn't tell that there was anything wrong with them so in that way it's a bit easy and you can make up an excuse for why you take your meds. You're growing obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly but surely. Not really. <laughs> He's still giant. Is he? Is yeah. How much taller than you is he? Um, I don't know. I think that 20 centimetres probably or something. Really? Oh, 20 centimetres absurd. <laughs> I wasn't really first told that. I mean, I can't remember um, being told that fully had HIV because it's just I've just kind of always known. It feels like it's just been like you know we're pretty much the same. But then that's probably the biggest difference between us or else um, that's what kind of, I suppose it kind of separates us in the biggest way, yeah. Have there ever been times for you growing up where you've um, been fearful of Vully yourself with his cut his arm open or something like that? Have you ever found yourself going, hey? Yeah, if he cuts himself or something, I'll obviously be a bit hesitant to, you know, go at it with open cuts. but. It's funny, like, say we might be with a few friends or something and he'll just, you know, graze himself, you know, we'll skateboarding or something. And kind of for everyone else, it's just like, oh, yeah, he just grazes himself. But then there's other factors to think about and, like, he might just put on a jumper or something or something to cover it. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> that was about half a second to get in your mouth anyway. I gotta do the four bucks. You haven't chewed it. You haven't chewed it. You didn't even chew the last one, you crazy man. <laughs> <laughs> I do have stuff in my mouth, I can't chew. What? <laughs> when he was five, the, there was a World AIDS conference in Amsterdam, I think. He was walking through the lounge room when it was on, just doing his five-year-old business, and he stopped dead in front of the TV and was watching it, and it was sort of like... I thought, no, he has some consciousness of this. I think it's time to bring it out in the open. So I sat them down and told them, like, you know, that thing that HIV and the AIDS thing and, you know, that thing that mummy and daddy died from, well, you've got that too. And for Beggy, it was a shock. Like, he was shocked. He got to see on his little face, he was like, what? But for Vully, he sort of knew. Now, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much Richard and Megan had talked to him, but he, he knew. He seemed to be um, accepting of it, on the surface anyway, at the time. But Beggy was incredibly shocked. Um, and from then it just became a matter-of-fact thing in our lives. It was, you know, HIV's there. Um, his viral load is undetectable. His CD4's uh, 564, which is 38%, which is normal. And uh, everything else is uh, within normal range. So there, there are no major uh, laboratory or clinical problems with Lily. He's doing well. Cool. <laughs> it's always good to hear. <laughs> There's like the kids support group, which is um, 
just kids from around, say, New South Wales with HIV positive, get together, just talk to each other. So, you know, you know that there's you're not the only one around. So it doesn't feel like that, and you just go there and learn about different experiences from um, other kids and stuff. Then there's Camp Good Time, which is all families, where entire families go to this big camp and get to just connect and um, not feel isolated. And all the kids there um, just have a great time as well, all different age groups and stuff. Cause I've, I mean, I've heard about a kid who's, who said um, if it wasn't for Camp Good Time and support groups and stuff that he, he probably wouldn't be here, he probably would have killed himself. It's a bit like that with um if you didn't if you didn't have any of that stuff and you supported it'd be much, much harder to deal with, I think. It's really helped me to um get a perspective of what it is and also to recognise that um other people are living with it as well. And that it's not um just a single battle like a lot of people are doing it all around the world. Even without medication, a lot of people are dying and stuff like that constantly, so I, I don't know, I think support groups are one of the one of the most helpful things that you can have next to, you know, good families and friends. Friends don't treat me like they used to Friends don't leave my burden down When we went back to Africa when the boys were eight, we went back to the, like, the traditional home land. It's in the southwestern corner of Zimbabwe. The boys had never actually been there um, because Richard and Megan hadn't actually been there before they came to Australia. And that was really um, a significant thing to do. And they actually did some initiation ceremonies with the boys on that visit. By then they were fairly Aussie. They were um, shocked but it, it didn't really entail anything that outrageous they basically slaughtered a goat for them and and poured the bile from the gallbladder onto their hands which they said they would have done to them when they were babies that that was it onto their heads but what i found from richard's family is that they're, they're incredibly sensitive and intelligent about cross-cultural interactions Annie emily said to me when I used to ask, what should I do, what should I do, she just said to me, you do the best that you can, and as long as they still know about their culture, they can chase that up when they're ready. It was pretty crazy recently because one of like our friends who we met through Camp Good Time, he's really sick at the moment and he's probably going to die soon, and like it was really confronting to go see him in hospital and... You know, we walked out of the hospital and we were talking about it and Blue was kind of saying, oh, you know, that's going to be me one day. And it really shows you the reality of it. Like, your body's just weaker and to fight any illness, it's going to just take it out of you. How emotionally difficult is it for you, being the twin of a HIV-positive person? I would... Like, I might feel a bit guilty sometimes maybe just because it wasn't me who like even though we're twins I was still um didn't get HIV for some whatever reason even though it's not me I was, there's still a lot of things to deal with and then then again then there's like 
you know, the possibility that Fully could die easier, you know, than um, most people. So that's pretty hard as well. But I don't think um, it would be nearly as hard as what he'd go through, definitely. Because the boys are twins, I've seen lots of instances as they've been growing up where it does affect Beggy as much, if not more, in some instances, as Vully. They're very close and they're very protective of each other. I wonder how the impact of one of them being HIV positive has on their relationship. And I did have an instance when they were a lot younger when I had to say to Beggy, Beggy's very bright, that he was not to hold himself back because of Vully. Now, was that to do with HIV? I don't know. Was it to do with twins? I don't know. But it's always very difficult to know what's the bit that's HIV, what's the bit the fact that their parents have died early on, and what's just normal twin behaviour, what's just normal adolescent behaviour. And I guess I don't know if how that affects their relationships with getting partners and all of those sorts of things. You know, it sometimes crosses my mind that does that hold Beggy back from having a relationship because he knows that it's more difficult for Vul? I don't know. Do you guys talk about sex? Oh, yeah, we talk about sex sometimes. I think it's hard for me to give him advice kind of thing because I haven't got HIV, so I don't know. Like, I really have no idea how to deal with that basically you just have to be in a pretty serious relationship before you could have sex I suppose I really don't know what to say or what to do I feel so alone in this love attack without you you make me feel that I'm the one but just not quite there what about girls and passing and having sexual relationships. Well, um, that's it's. I reckon it'd probably be it'd be a lot harder. I mean, when you're a teenager, it's hard enough, you know, to get all this courage to talk to girls, and you know, you get starting to get all interested in the stuff, and then you've got this extra thing that you don't need. Yeah, just weigh down on you. So it's a lot harder to tell people when girls are people too so I suppose yeah that's that there's that factor in it yeah have there been girls that you've you know wanted to have a relationship with and haven't in the HIV barrier has stopped you oh yeah I'd say so for sure yeah because it's just it's just too hard like it's just such a big psychological barrier even recently I told one of my friends now that was the first time I really had to do it myself it was pretty hard to do, but at the same time it was easy because it was such a relief to say it out in the open. That was kind of the benefit of it, and um, and they didn't have a problem with it. Like it was pretty fine, I think. But usually the best way I think is to kind of bring it up in a conversation, but don't connect yourself with it, so that just to see what their thoughts and opinions on it are at the moment before you, you know, just tell them. One of the main things that you really, never really know how someone's going to react. If they were, you know, one of my friends and they did find out and just 
all of a sudden turned around and didn't want to have anything to do with us, then I wouldn't really want them as a friend in the first place. Okay. Which arm is normally good for you? Um, the right okay. one. Yeah, right one. Let's find something. Tell me if it's too tight for you, okay? Alright? Yeah. Not pinching there? No. Okay, just do that for me, please. Thank you. Just to pop some binds up. Over the years, it it starts it starts as like this little thing that you have to keep secret, and it turns into this big thing that means a lot more that you have to keep secret. It's your secret. It's not something that your your parents are telling you not to tell. It's something that you don't want anyone to tell. Um, Vully's very fearful of people finding out, and I have to respect that. So therefore, I have to be careful who I talk to and what I say to people, because. Being involved with people with HIV, I know that there's a lot of um, fear and a lot of stigma. I mean, there have been instances where people have been ostracised from their family and friends or victimised, and I would hate any of that to happen to Vully. That hasn't so far been my experience. My experience of disclosure has only been a positive one. It's not something you can test before you do it. Two years ago, Vully was going on a camp, which involved him travelling overseas, which involved him taking his medication. And I said to him, we had a big talk, and I said, I think we need to tell this group that you're going with that you are positive. And he didn't want to. And I said, well, I think we better do it now than for them to find out at the airport in a foreign country that you've got a bag full of medication and they don't know what it's on about. It was very, very difficult. So we did go through the process of informing this organisation, who was fantastic. It was absolutely... They were just wonderful. But the tension leading up to that disclosure was horrendous. I was so angry... And so I threw all the furniture off the back veranda one afternoon and probably spent quite a few hours crying just out of sheer anger that the world, you just can't say, you can go and say, look, I've got cancer or, you know, I've got cystic fibrosis or, I, you know, I've got some other sort of um, life-threatening, but you can't say, oh, I've got HIV or, oh, by the way, my son has HIV without there being mass hysteria. That makes me really, really annoyed. I I'm, I'm, can be very passionately annoyed about that. I guess that's why I don't mind speaking out like on this, because it, I really care that people have to um, hide. And when you hide, and as a kid as you hide, you have to hide other parts of yourself as well because you're not sure whether it's going to accidentally leak out. And that's not fair either. You you don't like to let a lot of people know. Is that because you yourself want to keep it a secret or because you're protecting fully? Um, sometimes I might keep it a secret just to protect fully, but it's also me because some people might say, like I say, oh, my parents died when I was little. They'd say, oh, how'd they die? And I'd just say, car crash or something like that because there's so much stigma around AIDS and everything. Most people would think, oh, well, if 
the parents had it, then the kids are going to have it as well. I suppose if I wasn't wasn't a twin, then I could say, oh, yeah, they died from AIDS, but I don't have it. But I can't really say that because then I've got a twin as well. So what do you think about that? At the end of the day, um, dealing with, you know, telling people and so on, it's just kind of a side factor away from the reality of HIV that, you know, it's a disease that could kill you. How do you deal with thinking, are my life shorter than other people's? Any day now I could fall ill possibly and die. How do you deal with that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, that is something that seems like pretty harsh and stuff. But then again, the way I deal with it is that I've been healthy most of my life. And I mean, I think oh, HIV could kill me one day and it probably will. But then again, so could a bus or a train or, you know, a natural disaster or anything like in this world. I mean, in a way, I suppose it's not too much of a monkey on my back because you have to die of something, I suppose. And I've kind of grown used to the thought. And I'm so healthy right now, I kind of don't feel like it's going to happen in a way. If something happens out of my control, then I can, I mean, all I can do is accept it. I'm just hoping that with the medication and stuff, I can go for as long as possible. His last, hopefully, live till I'm an old man or something. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Epic, painful, long, scary was produced by Julie Kimberly for Street Stories on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Technical production by Philip Olman. You're listening to Resound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Very little is known about the emotional effects suffered by the brothers and sisters of children with severe mental illness. But a well sibling's needs often go unmet, even though they might be suffering in their own right from trauma, guilt, grief, and the burden of heavy responsibilities. In our next story, Karen Brown, a producer from WFCR in Amherst, chronicled the lives of two sets of siblings in her documentary, A Burden to Be Well. I often feel like this sort of genetic bullet was fired and it nicked me and it hit Debbie right in between the eyes, you know? I, I have at times um, resented my brother for taking up so much time and room and space and terrorizing and anguishing my parents so much, yeah. My, at one point my parents gave me a hook and eye lock for my door. And this is the period where my sister was killing my pets. And when I finally confronted my, my mother about this, she said, well, you know, what could we do? She was our daughter also. My mom used to say when I was in the 20s, Larry, you're at the bottom of my worry list. And I'd say, I don't like that because I have my own worries. I have my own concerns. But, you know, my family needed someone like me. You know, like you can't have everybody going crazy. recent years, siblings have started to speak out about the trauma, the guilt, and the hidden resentment of growing up with brothers or sisters with severe mental illness, conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. Many well siblings felt ignored while their ill siblings swallowed the family's energy and attention. No one seemed to notice what the illness was doing to the so-called healthy one. We both had pet hamsters, and I remember one of her games was holding her hands up and letting the hamsters run up and down the, uh, the keyboard of the piano um, and having her slam down the, uh, the lid of the keyboard and kill my hamster. But that was, to me, it was like, yeah, 
don't complain when your pet gets killed because you could be next. That's Clea Simon, a Boston journalist who wrote the memoir Madhouse, Growing Up with a Mentally Ill Brother and Sister. Both of her older siblings were struck with schizophrenia when Clea was only six. Simon's sister, at 16, became violent and threatening until she was sent to a group home. Her brother transformed from a beloved nurturer to a paranoid loner who eventually committed suicide. You know, when you see your brother and your sister uh, grow up and change from your brother and your sister into something scary and weird and and alien, you just think that's what happens. Um, you think that when you hit 16, you're allowed to date and, and to drive, and then you're hospitalized. It's almost like my brother kind of died when he was 22, but he lived as a, you know, a ghost for the next 45 years. Larry Roof of Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, was in high school when his older brother Jack descended into schizophrenia. We'd have to visit him every Sunday. My mom would make us visit him, and we'd have to go into this terrible Edgar Allan Poe-type state hospital that smelled and listened to my brother rant and rave and beg us to take him home. Roof and Simon, both separately, believe they now suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, a collection of debilitating symptoms, from flashbacks to nightmares, usually seen in people who've been in combat, attacked, or who've witnessed something terrible. A family will go from one crisis to another, and there is very little time or effort to explain to siblings what's going on, and so that makes it more likely that Um, there would be these uh, PTSD symptoms that persist decades later. University of Pittsburgh psychologist Diane Marsh wrote the book Troubled Journey about families and mental illness. Marsh conducted one of the first studies of well siblings of the mentally ill. I kept noticing that they were talking about what we might call emotional numbing, that they had at some level and sometimes fully lost the capacity to feel. Or, as Rex Dickens, Marsh's co-author and himself the brother of three mentally ill siblings, puts it, siblings like him are frozen souls. You kind of shut down emotionally in, in, in part of your life, and then that kind of carries over into you know, other areas. You can't trust, you can't feel, you can't talk. So there's a little core there that's frozen in time, and maybe to be dealt with later, but kind of never does get dealt with. Martian Dickens found that well siblings have higher rates of depression than the general public and may feel it's up to them to make up for their family's loss. They are the perfectly behaved children, the A students, because their family was fragile and couldn't afford any other problems. And so they felt, um, as one sibling put it, a burden to be well. When you have to grow up early, You know, when you pick a fruit too green, it doesn't have a chance to really mature and ripen. They get kind of stopped in their development. Others worry they might catch what their brother or sister has. Psychologist Jeannie Safer wrote the book The Normal One. Her own brother was severely depressed, erratic, and obese. And even though she became a well-known writer and accomplished therapist, she's never felt immune from her brother's fate. If I wasn't so brilliant one day, or if I didn't have a friend, or if I, God forbid, I gained some weight, it became devastating because I could always turn into him. So he was the side of me that was dark and terrifying. 
Certainly all families are different, but a collection of common symptoms is now portrayed in research literature as a sibling syndrome. One of the cornerstones is survivor's guilt. Why was my sister or brother afflicted? Why not me? That somehow, uh, through a stroke of fate, um, they had been saved from this horrible fate. Psychologist Diane Marsh. And as they mature... Um, and they go on to careers and relationships and families, over and over again we heard that it is, is with a sense of loss for their sibling who may not be able to move on. As siblings age, there are practical concerns beyond the existential ones. In one clinical survey, 94% of well siblings reported a pervasive worry that they will have to take responsibility for a mentally ill brother or sister when their parents no longer can. Peter Roof cared for his brother Jack for more than 20 years. So once a week I'd take him to this diner and I would feed him and he would be like a wild animal. Like I'd, I'd say, I would use my own money, I'd say, Anything you want, eat and eat, and he would eat, like, meatloaf, dinner, mashed potatoes. He had no teeth, they were all rotted, and his hair was, you know, whatever, and he'd be smoking. And he never once ever said thank you, nothing. There are family support groups geared to parents of mentally ill children, but very few designed for siblings. Psychologist Jeannie Safer, while doing research for her book, tried in vain to find clinical information on sibling issues. I went to the index, the 404-page index of Freud's complete works. There are no references to siblings. However, there is a reference to Siberia, and my fantasy has always been is that's where all the siblings went. <laughs> but the good news, she says, is that more siblings are finding each other, creating their own community and seeking help. Clea Simon says after years of therapy, she was finally able to confront and make peace with her past. I think it takes a lot of strength to face something awful and not, you know, try to be a Pollyanna about it and say, oh, wasn't that bad? And I feel a certain sympathy and I really understand my sister now. I, I think that's crap. I think it's awful and it changes your life and it changes who you are. And if you can accept that, then you live your life now. siblings fare when exposed to serious mental illness depends greatly on when the illness surfaces, as Diane Marsh of the University of Pittsburgh found in her 1997 sibling study. The younger they were, and it was a strong finding, the more vulnerable they were and the more devastating the legacy that they carried on. In families where mental illness hits early, the entire household feels the impact. Parents coping with one wild and unpredictable child have the added challenge of raising other children who are in the middle of their own development. Look, we're not having any more soup. Eat it or don't have any. Eat what you have. And now you can pick that up too. This, I'm told, is a relatively calm afternoon at the Stannis household in southern New Hampshire. Eight-year-old Olivia is bounding between the kitchen, where she's demanding a snack from her mother, Deb, and the living room, where her two sisters are doing homework and playing computer games. Suddenly, Olivia accuses her 11-year-old sister, Audrey, of taking her toy, and her mother tells Audrey to go to her room. You know how much of a baby she's been? You know what you just I, She slapped Rose a minute ago. She slapped me a minute ago. You know what, Audrey? She sent her up twice. You know what? You know better than to do that, and you need to go... Olivia sets the tone in the house when she's having a bad day. We're all having a bad day. It's, it's, 
next to impossible not to feed off that irritability, that anxiety, that frustration, that anger. Two years ago, at the age of seven, Olivia was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, an illness characterized by debilitating highs and lows and outbursts of violence. Her mother says it's been torture for her older sister, Audrey. I mean, Audrey would be jumping on the trampoline this spring with her, and all of a sudden Audrey comes in through her jeans. She has a big bite mark. Or we'd be in the car and she'd just be screaming, I'm just so mad, I need to bite something. She'd lean over and try and bite her sister. It traumatizes the family and it ends up traumatizing each individual. Author and advocate Rex Dickens, who, like Audrey, watched his ill siblings become out of control. He considers himself and other well siblings secondary victims of mental illness. Somebody that has to live with trauma day in and day out. And the odd deal is, is there's nobody to blame. Hi, Audrey. On this afternoon, Audrey Stannis has just gotten off the school bus. She makes herself ramen noodles and relishes having her mother all to herself. It's a half hour before Olivia gets home. As Audrey eats, she recalls the time Olivia's outburst sent her to the emergency room. She started calling me a name. And then next thing I know, she's saying, I'm going to throw this book at you. And it, I turned around right when she was throwing it, so it hit my face. And I, I was bleeding, and I remember screaming down the hall and watching the blood drip from my face. I don't believe she ever got grounded for that. Her mother is well aware of the resentment Audrey feels, that her childhood is in many ways at the mercy of Olivia's volatility. For a short time, they took Audrey to a counselor. She would just go in there. She was just so angry. She was, she was threatening suicide. She was, I'm going to run away. I hate this family. I can't live here. And to be quite honest, what she went through, I, part of it, I can't blame her. She really got abused by this this child, and I couldn't separate them. I felt so helpless. I, I couldn't protect her. She says she does try to keep Audrey safe from Olivia. She puts them on opposite ends of the house, but as soon as she turns her back, Olivia runs to find her sister. Deb installed a lock on the door to Audrey's room, but Olivia found the key. I should have her locked in the laundry room again. That worked. Her mother is actually relieved that Audrey can be so blunt, like a typical child, because she worries Audrey's growing up too fast. Often after a disastrous day with Olivia, she's likely to turn to her eldest daughter for backup. And she would be able to take her sister and turn her around and get her calmed down and do something to diffuse the situation. And I thank God for her so many times that she would do that for me. And I, then I felt so guilty because here's my nine-year-old daughter having to be in this role of, you know, to help her sister and help me. And it's hard on you in later life because you have not had a childhood. You've been your mother's keeper and your sister's keeper. Jeannie Safer, psychotherapist and author of the book, The Normal One. It is virtually universal for role reversals to occur, that the functioning, the higher functioning child becomes a parent. She becomes what one person called the family vice president. You know, so she has a lot of responsibility and no power. <laughs> Olivia is more stable now since her psychiatrist changed her medication, and that's made it easier for Deb and her husband to give Audrey days when she's the center of attention. Recently, Audrey competed in a cheerleading tournament where she was selected with a friend to sing the national anthem. 
The whole family watched, even Olivia, as she sang before a packed auditorium. But her mother wonders if special occasions like this are enough to insulate Audrey from the stress of their household. Diane Marsh says that's a valid fear. As hard as parents may try, and and they do, to meet the needs of their well siblings, time and energy are simply finite. And so siblings often feel like the forgotten family members, everybody else's problems are more important than theirs. 11-year-old Audrey. When Olivia is being a jerk and doing her weird thing, but like, and then I'll be downstairs asking for a question on my homework and they'll say, Audrey, go away now. They won't give me anything until they're done with her, which takes until like midnight to calm her down. And her mother, Deb Stannis. It would be so intense with Olivia. By the time I finally got her to bed, and Audrey would say, please, mommy, just come with me, come lay down with me. And by then my whole body was just, I can't have anybody touch me. I just need to be quiet without any, you know, I, and so there were days where I'd say, I can't, Audrey, I just can't even come in there. I just have to go in my own bed and be alone. It breaks my heart that I even said that to her because she deserves so much more, you know. The sibling syndrome is not unique to childhood. Like mental illness, it often endures and evolves over the lifespan of siblings. Pam and Carolyn Spiro know this well. They're twin sisters, relaxing in Pam's high-rise apartment near Hartford, Connecticut. For some reason, this leg is pins and needles. Oh, do you want slippers? No, no, no. It's At 52, both are blonde and petite, with long, narrow faces. But one of them looks more weathered, less groomed, with skin strangely scarred. You might still not know who's diagnosed with severe mental illness until Pam starts to talk about her breakfast conversation. The cup, the teacup, was saying to me, there's a chip in me, and it really hurts when you drink tea out of me on that side. It occurred to you and that maybe this, the, tea the tea had an opinion, too? Well, it might have, but, but the cup... Carolyn is said, humoring her sister. No, she knows a talking teacup is an auditory hallucination, a reminder of Pam's ongoing struggle with schizophrenia. It's only the latest character in Pam's long history of mental illness, a history that sadly marred her life as well as her twin sister's. You could say it started as early as their birth, when according to some scientists, the seed of schizophrenia was likely planted in Pam, but not in Carolyn. Genes play some role in virtually every important chronic disease that the human is is subject to, Uh, but rather than causing these, they're rather predisposing. Psychiatrist Fuller Torrey of the Stanley Medical Institute in D.C. is heading a national study to determine why one twin gets major mental illness and the other doesn't. He now believes it comes down to an infectious agent or a virus, although they haven't yet identified which kind. In some cases, Tori says, a pregnant mother contracts a virus or infection, but only passes it onto one child. If you think of a virus coming and has to turn right or turn left and it goes one way or the other. Uh, the other possibility, which I think is a larger possibility, is that the majority of cases probably become infected in childhood uh, after, the, after the child is born, in which case one of the children is infected, one of the twins in this case is, is exposed to the infectious agent, uh, and the other one was not. When Pam and Carolyn were children, they both seemed fine, 
Like many twins, they were best friends and bitter rivals. They even competed for thinness to the point that both were treated for anorexia nervosa. But no one in the family, not their other two siblings nor their parents, noticed when Pam first began to hear voices. It was November 22, 1963. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. While sitting in a grade school classroom, while everyone else was riveted by the news of JFK's assassination, Pam began to hear murmuring in her head. Well, at first they weren't saying anything. Then they were just saying my name. And they were mangling it, you know, saying Pam, Spam, Pam, Pyro, Spyro. And then they started saying, kill you, kill, kill, will you kill him, kill him, kill you, kill you, will you kill him, will you kill you. The message was more a realization that I'd killed Kennedy. That became her new reality, a belief she had the power to kill through her own thoughts. Pam told no one of the menacing voices now filling her head, but Carolyn could tell something changed. She was going to school with greasy hair, greasy face, and looking disheveled and embarrassing me. There's a lot going on in the back seat of the car that parents don't really know about. Hella Thoring of New York State Psychiatric Institute. The well sibling who have a sibling that's becoming ill are often the first people to kind of notice that there's something going on. Then they might also be exposed to strange and bizarre behavior that they don't really know how to understand. Carolyn and Pam Spiro stuck together after high school. They both went to Brown University, where Carolyn thrived, but Pam fell deeper into paranoia and hallucinations. I would see her sometimes in the cafeteria, sitting alone in, the, in a corner. I'd occasionally stop by her room and find her sort of barricaded in, in the corner with her desk or behind the door. She knew I was burning myself with like 10 cigarettes in a wad at a time. So I would just say things like, I feel numb, I feel like moon rock. But what I wouldn't say is that there were also voices saying, you'll feel better if you burn yourself. And then Pam tried to kill herself with an overdose of sleeping pills. She left college and moved back home. That's when Carolyn started to pull away. It was some sense of apprehension about being around her for fear that I'd lose the sense of separateness. Like, for years I did have this feeling that if Pammy got better, what then? Will I either have to relinquish who I am? Will I lose who I am? When you have a brother or sister who doesn't function, you are far too merged with their identity, whether consciously, because you think you're much too similar, more similar than you really are, or unconsciously. Psychologist and author Jeannie Safer. Whether it takes the form of saying, well, I have nothing to do with that person, I'm the opposite of that person, or if you say, well, you know, I'm a little schizophrenic myself, it's, it's like you're never totally separate. As much as Carolyn tried to lead her own life, she made choices very much connected to Pam's fate. She became a psychiatrist, and she married young, something she now thinks was her way of proving she was normal. During these years, Pam had lucid stretches where she honed her writing skills and won awards for poetry. But the voices always came back, and Carolyn got frequent calls from emergency rooms where Pam ended up. I was at my wit's end. She was becoming desperate, 
possibly suicidal. They were treating her like she had a terminal illness. You know, you might want to consider saying goodbye. Pam did survive after dozens of episodes over three decades, some near fatal. Only recently did she find a medication that's kept the voices at bay. Pam and Carolyn have now told their story in a new memoir called Divided Minds, Twin Sisters and Their Journey Through Schizophrenia. In recent months, they've been on a book tour where they trade off reading passages at colleges and bookstores. Would you mind turning off the radio? I asked the taxi driver. It's hurting my ears. Head turned toward me. Then, lady, you must be hearing things because the radio ain't on. The book wasn't easy to pull off as Pam was hospitalized several times during the writing process. And the tour has been a strain, since Pam gets tired easily and doesn't like crowds. It's also forced the sisters to spend more time together than they have in years, for better or worse. Pam's paranoia is never entirely gone. Even in the middle of the tour, she's still hallucinating about something she calls the hazmat man. That's a figure Pam sees when she looks at the hazardous materials emblem on her plastic medical baggies. Carolyn tries to empathize. I think I see what you're talking about. Yeah, the eyebrows and that. No, no. The head is up here. The arms are down over here. No, I don't. Is it threatening the man, or is it just... Well, it's not threatening now, because I know where the real hazmat man is. He's uh, locked up in an Altoid box. This is where Carolyn's face goes from bemused to exasperated. You don't really believe that, do you? I mean, I have the box, and it's still taped up. Keep it taped up. I do, but you don't really believe this, do you? I mean, in all honesty. There are times that it feels like a lot when when I'm getting behind in my own bills, when she's getting sick, when she's deciding on her own not to take medication, which she's not doing at the moment, but then I feel it. Oh, yeah. Then it's an imposition. Then I hate it. Yeah, you've got the freedom to not take medication because you're independent. You get to do what you want when you want to do it in the hell with whatever I want. And guess whose freedom you get to take away? Mine. These days, Carolyn has a new worry about her twin sister. Okay. I have pomegranate juice. Oh, well, that's a lot. To Pam's eat. been losing weight rapidly. She's under 90 pounds. Her genes barely hang on her hips. And given her history with anorexia, the doctors are concerned. During this visit, Carolyn gets peanut butter out of her fridge and begs Pam to eat. You need to eat to maintain your weight so that you can at least have clothes that hang on your body that don't fall off and so that you don't get a cardiac arrhythmia, and so I that... I have a heart attack. Uh, I've already told you this a million times. Can no, give you, can tell give me. Pam starts to tremble at her sister's scolding and walks out of the kitchen, but then she comes back and lets Carolyn finish. That it's no different than you not taking your antipsychotic medication for me. I can't stop you. All I can do is sit and watch and feel helplessness, 
despair. I mean, I have no control over you. I have no control over this. So once again, my future with you is linked to something I have no control over. The subsequent silence lasts for half an hour until they leave for a doctor's visit for Pam, one of many that was scheduled by Carolyn. And even though they live an hour apart, Carolyn often does Pam's grocery shopping and cleans her apartment. Nevertheless, they both consider this a relatively smooth patch for Pam, now that she's found an effective medication for her schizophrenia. That's helped Pam recognize her impact on other people. I made a vow when I got out of the hospital in February that I would take every single pill, liquid, potion, whatever they wanted me to take, without fail. And I've pretty much lived up to that. But as Carolyn is keenly aware, she could hit another bad patch. And yet, as much as schizophrenia has hurt their lives and their relationship, Carolyn says she can't imagine a world without the twin sister she loves, a sister who's sensitive and smart, but who clearly drew the short straw. I'm so lucky. When I said earlier that I don't deserve anything that I have, all I meant was none of us deserve anything, really. We just get it by grace of whatever. I guess I think I could just as well have been the one who got schizophrenia. Well, that's the fear of all siblings, is that therefore the grace of God go they. Author and sibling Rex Dickens. I always believed that it was in the genes, in the blood, and that if you got it, you had it, and if you didn't have it, you didn't have it, and that um, I just felt they were unlucky and that it was a tragedy that they were unlucky. I think the legacy is that you have to struggle to come into your own, that you have to struggle to feel that you have a right to your life. Psychologist Jeannie Safer. That you must, you absolutely must understand and work to understand the effect of having that sibling on you. And your goal should be to make recognizing your relationship with that sibling important and essential, but not the center of your life. A Burden to Be Well was produced by Karen Brown of WFCR in Amherst and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner of American Radio Works with additional help from John Dankowski. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. ReSound's intern is Lily Bowie. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.